it's invisible, it's colorless, it's odorless, it's tasteless. And yet, there is a clear and present danger in our homes that many of us may not be aware of. Uh, if you uh, have ever heard uh, your firefighting friends tell you, you always want to have fresh batteries in your smoke detector, but also a simple device that can save your life, a carbon monoxide detector. When our carbon monoxide detectors go off, like our smoke detectors in our homes, that is our clear warning to run away from the presence of this dangerous poison. If you've ever had your smoke detector go off in your home, the way these engineers have designed the very pitch of the sound and how unpleasant it is, when the alarm goes off, that is not the time for us to say, hmm, I wonder if I should pay attention to that. When that detector goes off, that is your warning sign, run. You need to pay attention and you need to find refuge. But similar to this invisible, colorless, odorless, and tasteless poison in our homes, you and I, whether we know it or not, we face a similar and far deadlier poison even in the church, even in the church. And we have been warned about its presence. I'm glad that the uh, subject of our uh, sermon is not up on the screen yet because Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, I want to give you a hint of what I am referring to about this deadlier poison in the church. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 11.2 warns us, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. We're given another warning in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Friends, if uh, you haven't caught on to the theme yet, uh, I'm going to hold the, 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 the big reveal to you for just one second. Because we don't only see these warnings in the book of Proverbs. Jesus speaks about this particular uh, warning himself. He gives us this warning in Mark chapter 7. Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. So maybe you've picked up the theme now. We're going to consider pride in the church. We have been warned in the scriptures that pride is a significant danger, not only in the lives of Christians individually, but in the lives of, the Christ of Christians corporately in the church. It's very easy to see pride sometimes in other people, though. There's a, there's a difficulty with understanding pride because we can see when someone's being an arrogant jerk, that's very hard for us to see ourselves being that same arrogant jerk. We might be slow to admit it. We might be slow to confess it. Uh, we might just not even want to touch it. Like if, if I don't say anything about it, then I don't have to pay any attention to it. But it would be important to consider how the scriptures speak about this issue. What is pride? What does it mean to be prideful? Uh, in our culture and in our society, you will hear uh, 
teachers in classrooms, you will hear employers in the workspace, that you should take pride in your work. You should take pride in your achievements. You should take pride in yourself. Right? But what does that actually mean? Right? There's this idea that pride refers to a respectable self-esteem or even an exaggerated self-esteem. But I don't think our modern understanding or modern definitions of pride is the most helpful. I think if we go back in time, we can understand pride more carefully. There's an early church father, many of you may be familiar with him, uh, by the name of Augustine. But in his famous work, City of God, the early church father Augustine defined pride very carefully, very succinctly, and I believe very helpfully. He defined pride simply as the craving for undue exaltation. Pride is the craving for undue exaltation. Uh, in the city of God, Augustine breaks down this idea of what pride is and how pride is seen in the very beginning of the fall. Because the serpent, when tempting Eve, uh, basically tempts her to say, don't you want to be like God? So if God is the one being who deserves all exaltation, don't you want a little taste? Don't you want to know what that feels like? It's the craving for undue exaltation. Many of us may be unaware that we have such a craving. The, this, this craving to be seen better by others, this craving to be respected by others, whether we have earned it or not. Uh, we may be slow to admit that we're prideful. And we'll talk about what that kind of looks like a little bit later on. But as another author so aptly said, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing. Think about that. It, slowly and, it silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing. Uh, one biblical counselor by the name of Ed Welch in a very helpful counseling article said, Pride might help us feel strong and attractive in our own eyes, at least for a moment. But in reality, it is a gross violation of our created design. When seen accurately, it is ugly, destructive, and utterly absurd. Pride is one of the foremost ways of describing sin. It is wrong. It is against God and other people. And it is bizarre and incongruous because human beings are, by nature, dependent and have accomplished nothing in themselves that justifies enthronement. Now, I am standing here looking at a room full of very qualified, very competent, very skillful, intelligent, hardworking people, and I am telling you there is nothing in you that deserves enthronement. You can email me later, but I say that with respect for you. Welch goes on to say, we live only by the immeasurable riches of his grace. Our resumes are essentially empty, yet we believe we have earned the right to look down on others. It can feel right, but when you look in the mirror of scripture, you see something that looks more like Dr. Seuss's Yertle the Turtle. It is strange, given that we are created and not the creator. If we are not appalled by our pride, we will be less compelled to cast it aside. Friends, if you are dealing with a chronic uh, health issue, if you're ever gonna make it past it, if you can, you gotta start with knowing what the issue is. 
If you don't know what the issue is, how will you ever move forward? If we are unwilling or unable to understand our own sin of pride, how can we then walk in holiness, putting our pride aside, and giving the proper exaltation that is due to God to God? Now, what does pride look like in the church? Well, I think in many instances, it often looks like moral superiority, right? We look down on others with the harsh and critical spirit because they don't really behave like us, right? They look like they might be doing questionable things, and so we assume, kind of fill in the blanks in our own minds, uh, that they are morally inferior. Pride in the church often looks like racism, Racism is in the church. It looks like ethnic superiority. My ethnicity is superior to yours in all these ways, and I'm going to make sure you know it by the way I treat you. That's what pride in the church looks like in the form of racism. Pride in the church can also look like classism, looking down on others who may not be as wealthy. And maybe you're not someone who looks down on someone because they're not wealthy, but maybe you're someone who treats them differently distrustful, uncomfortable, a certain discomfort because they're just not as wealthy as you. And by the looks of it, they look like they're not as wealthy as you. Pride in the church can look like competitive comparison. Uh, competitive comparison in the sense that I think of myself better than you because I can do X, Y, and Z. Or it can look like competitive comparison in the form of self-deprecation. I'm just never going to be good enough compared to you. Right? We compare our own standing socially, culturally, relationally, economically against others. Right? Competitive comparison. Pride in the church can look like slowness to forgive others when others sin against us. Uh, all my married folks are probably like, yeah, I know that. My, my spouse is very slow to admit when they're wrong. When you have sinned against your spouse and you know you're wrong and you know you need to admit you're wrong and confess your sin and you need to remember what Pastor Chris said in that, in that conflict in the church sermon like way, way, way back and you're thinking, all right, I'm supposed to confess my sin and I'm supposed to ask for forgiveness and I'm supposed to repent to the Lord and I'm supposed to repent to this person. I just can't get the words out of my mouth. Right? They have wronged me so much and I want them to know it with the ever faithful silent treatment. Friends, slowness to forgive is pride. Uh, another example of uh, pride in the church. I don't have an exhaustive list, but I think these are some common examples that you and I probably face, uh, whether we are guilty of, it, of ourselves or others are guilty of it uh, against us. But uh, my, my final example, unforgiving judgmentalism. We can be very harsh against others. We can be very harsh and judgmental because they're not doing what I think they should be doing. They're not behaving in the way I think they should be behaving. They're not living in the way that I think they should be living. And oftentimes, we're not frustrated that they're not living according to the scriptures. We become increasingly more judgmental because they're not looking like us. Because we've got it all together. Like, we've got it right. I've been a Christian for so long. You should really be learning from me. Right? Unforgiving judgmentalism. And I can go on. But did you ever remember the fact that 
James chapter 4 reminds us uh, the reason, the, the main reason why Christians and the church should be concerned with pride. Because James reminds us, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It doesn't look like James is saying, God is chummy with the proud. No, he opposes the proud. He, op he opposes those who are staunchly and steadfastly prideful. And yet, he gives grace to the humble. So how then can we understand our own pride and cast it aside? How can we see this ugly monster of pride in ourselves before we start to go hunt the monster uh, in others? How can we understand this issue, understand this monster, and cast it aside? I think a very helpful passage that we'll uh, spend our time through this morning is found in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me there now to Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you're new to reading the Bible, you're welcome to follow along on the screen. Might I encourage you to also use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, you're welcome to, uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible that you can read comfortably and understand, um, that is our gift to you. Uh, if I'm not supposed to give those away, uh, someone let me know. I will happily uh, pay for that. But there you go. You've got the warrant to take that Bible home. Uh, you can follow along in Luke chapter 15. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Um, if you have never opened a Bible before, just turn to page 1039. We're looking at Luke chapter 15. But before we jump into uh, verses 11 to 32, that's the main bulk of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. I want to start in the beginning. And this is not me being a Baptist preacher trying to preach as long as I can. I want to serve you well and help you well. We're going to look first at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. These opening verses sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. And if we miss what's being said in these opening verses and the surrounding context, we're going to misunderstand what Jesus is aiming at through the rest. So in verses 1 through 3, notice Luke says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, did you notice what kind of people were drawing near to hear Jesus? There's two kinds, specifically. Tax collectors and sinners. So in his uh, incredible preaching ministry, the most unlikely people are the ones who are crowding the fields to come hear Christ. Tax collectors were despised among the ethnic Israelites. And it's not just like, a, like I'm uncomfortable to stand beside you. The, the, uh, the ethnic, racial, socioeconomic tension between the Israelites and those who were tax collectors was palpable. You could feel the tension by the frowed, uh, or the, the, uh, the, is it burrowed, frow, frowed, burrow? Uh, it's the thing that I do when I'm listening intently, this, this part of my faith. I mean, you could see the tension, you could hear the anger, you could, you could hear and feel the teeth grinding when the tax collectors came by. Why is that? Well, living under the captivity of the Roman Empire, tax collectors, they weren't your normal uh, IRS G-men who told you, hey, your taxes are due now. No, these were the types of people who found ways to enrich themselves by abusing their authority and taking more money than they should have in order to 
pocket it for their own advantage. So tax collectors were hated. They were hated. And yet, tax collectors were coming to hear Jesus. And not only were tax collectors coming, sinners were coming. Well, what does that mean? Well, in our day, we likely understand sinners to mean everyday normal people who make mistakes. Right? Like, we're all sinners. Like, you know, it's totally normal to make mistakes. Right? But that's not how the people of Israel understood sinners. When Luke records for us it was sinners who were coming, we need to properly understand that this is how the religious elites, the Pharisees, understood the wayward people. The one who were in open rebellion, the one who were debaucherous and immoral. These were the people who neither observed the moral laws of the Jewish faith, nor did they observe the ceremonial laws of purity. They were sinners. They were not like us. They were those on the outside. Right? But friends, did you notice what's recorded here in this one brief verse? Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing to hear him. What does that tell you about Jesus Christ? If you are not a Christian today, you might not be somebody who uh, identifies yourself as one who follows Jesus. There was something very important to understand and maybe clarify maybe some misconceptions about Jesus Christ. And I'll just give you the answer now. In the riches of God's grace and mercy, Christians believe this. Christians understand that Jesus has come to save all kinds of people. We do not believe that Jesus came just to save the conservatives or just the liberals. We do not believe that he came just to save the poor or just the rich or just the intellectuals or just the Westerners or just the ones who have it all morally together. There is no kind of person Jesus has not come to save. None. There's no exceptions to what kind of person Jesus has come to save. Later on in Luke 19, when Jesus chose to dine and recline with the hated tax collector Zacchaeus, do you remember how Jesus described his rescue mission? He said in verse 10, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So what kind of person has Jesus come to save? He has come to save the lost. And if you do not know Jesus, we respect you more than you think. We honor you more than you assume. We believe that God has better for you than you believe yourself. Because we believe that you are lost and Christ has come to save you. Because we too were once lost. And now we are found. If you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, please don't check out for the rest of the sermon. I would be happy to talk to you more about what Christianity means, what Christianity looks like, maybe help you understand more clearly what it means to believe in Jesus. I will either be in the front here or in the back there. Uh, the more handsome pastor, Pastor Josh, will be here as well. We would love to talk to you more about what Christianity is and maybe also what it isn't. But let's continue. Uh, so Jesus continues on in verse 3. So he told them this parable. Now, in this stunning chapter, Luke chapter 15, Jesus delivered three parables. He delivers these three parables, redefining and clarifying what it means to be lost. So first, there's the parable of the lost sheep. Then there's the parable of the lost coin. And then in the third parable, which is likely his most famous parable, is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, these opening verses show us 
who Jesus had in mind when he's delivering these parables. So he's got tax collectors, and he's got sinners, and he's got all kinds of people in between listening to him. But the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes are present, and the way in which Jesus is delivering and teaching about what it means to be lost, gives us the implication that he really wants the Pharisees to understand what it means to be lost. Now, uh, Jesus is speaking to those uh, who understand themselves to be wayward. They, they live lives in rebellion. Jesus is speaking to those who are ignorant, and they think that they have, it figured, they have it all figured out and that they understand what they need to do. But he is also speaking to those who are self-righteous, who are, uh, assume that by their perfect, uh, uh, dogmatic, moralistic behavior, that because of that, they are in right standing with God. That God should welcome them because they are in right standing based on their behavior, right? He is speaking to self-righteous people who were quick to condemn others for not being as morally upright as themselves. Notice, the Pharisees said, they didn't say this jovially, they grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They hate this idea. So who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to people who refused to admit their own blindness, their narrowness, and their self-righteousness. So, as we look at this famous parable, we are going to consider three characters. We're going to ask two questions, and we're going to dwell on one main idea. Three characters, two questions, one main idea. Our first character, uh, starting in verse 11, the prodigal son. So look with me at verse 11. And he said, he being Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. All right, we're going to pause right here. Now, we do not live in the ancient Near East. We live in modern 21st century America. And so the context behind what Jesus is saying here might be a little foreign to us. In the ancient Near East, for a son to say to his father, uh, give me my share of the property was equivalent to saying, old man, I want you dead and I want your stuff. It's the highest form of disrespect to the leader of any patriarchal society. I want you dead. I want your stuff. Give it to me. The younger son in this parable, he bucks up against the cultural norms and he demands from his father what's his. See, in, the, in this particular culture, it was the older son that was owed a double portion of the inheritance, and the rest of the, ch the sons would get what was left. But the younger son says, I don't care how this is supposed to be done. I care about how I want it to be done, and I want what's mine. So Jesus continued, and he divided his property between them. So the father receives the son's uh, I think it would be charitable to say request, and he divides the property. For a man to do this in the ancient Near East without retaliating and keeping his reputation intact, this was inconceivable. I mean, this is so unthinkable. It's such a foreign idea that a man in this culture and society would do something like this. But why would Jesus do this? Jesus was not a bombastic type figure where he's just lobbing grenades at people to see what sticks. Jesus was aiming to rattle the paradigms of his listeners with such an unthinkable parable. 
Now they've got to listen. They've got to, they've got to try to pay attention. Why would a father do this? Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. All right. So many of the dads and moms in this room, like, y'all got your 401ks ready. You've got your IRAs maxed out. You know, you've got your last will and testament, your estates planned and whatnot. There's probably a little bit of, like, fear in you, like, I really hope my kid doesn't ruin my stuff, like, when I'm gone. Like, I really don't want them to squander it all. Like, like maybe you're somebody that's going to will your new car to them one day, and you're like, I really don't want them to ding it up because I've seen them drive before, right? We are not given any sort of reason as to why the father would acquiesce to the younger son's demand. But he does. He, he, he divides the property, and the son, you have to wonder, like, how gleeful and excited he must have been. He's got all this stuff, he's got all this money, and he's going to go take a journey into a far country. So what was his plan? His plan was to take his father's things and go spend it on himself. It really is just as simple as that. But when you hear the term prodigal, what comes to your mind is probably the idea of a wayward child. Right? You have probably seen, maybe in your own experience, in your own families, or uh, in your immediate family, or your uh, 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 distant family, or friends, or relatives, or what have you, uh, maybe there was that one child that bucked up against the, the standards of the family and the social norms and the expectations and just said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to believe like you. I don't want to behave like you. I don't want to live like you. I'm going to go do my own thing, right? And in many instances, that can bring heartache and difficulty and challenge. And if, and if you are dealing with that today, uh, know that uh, your pastors are praying for you and we are here to walk with you. The members of the church are here to serve you and walk with you if, if you've got a wayward child. But the term prodigal does not refer to that. The term prodigal is not a term of morality or immorality. Uh, the, the, the term prodigal actually uh, means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. The, the idea of being prodigal means you are wastefully extravagant. Right? So this is not a question of morality. Right? Uh, this is a question of spending. Spending extravagantly. Uh, another definition for prodigal means having or giving something on a lavish scale. So the younger son was prodigal in the sense that he was reckless and wasteful in his spending because he was going to spend it on himself. Now, story continues. Verse 14. And when he had, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. All right. This is kind of the warning that parents will sometimes give to their wayward child, right? Like, don't be foolish. Don't be reckless. Your resources are limited and your time is limited. So don't do stupid things, right? But when Jesus is painting this picture of com being completely destitute, and now a famine arises, and he is away in that country, he's far, right? He's far from home, and he's far from safety and refuge. He began to be in need, right? He's in material need. But when you consider the story more carefully, 
brother's been in need from the very beginning. He needed his father's wealth. He needed a plan. He needed his position, and he needed to be released. But now he's in material need. So what does he do? He goes out, and he hires himself to be an indentured servant. He's in such a far country. We don't know how far, but he's in a country so far away that whoever hired him probably had no knowledge of who his father was. I don't know who your daddy is, and I don't even care. He had no knowledge of who his father was. He did not care, but this younger son in this parable was so desperately lost geographically, uh, financially, morally, and he was in such great need that he began to eat with the pigs out of their nasty feeding troughs. Uh, Pigs weren't exactly held in high regard in Jewish culture. So imagine uh, 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 understanding that and saying, this kid was eating with the pigs? That's nasty. But did you notice that he had no one to blame? He's not blaming his dad. He's not blaming his older brother. He's not blaming uh, uh, the neighbors around him. He's got no one to blame. Continue looking uh, at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. All right. There's an understanding in the scriptures that sin is not sim- uh, does not simply just affect our actions. It not only affects our words. Sin affects our minds. As sinners, we are out of our right minds. Uh, we may be logically sound and we may be emotionally intelligent. We might be individuals who can think clearly and, rash- and, and rationalize things. But because sin has tainted the way we think, we are individuals, spiritually speaking, who are out of our minds. How then can we find our right minds? How then can we find the right sense of thinking, right? So at some point, this younger son comes to his right mind, and he says, you know what? I'm going to go, and I'm going to Uh, beg for my father's forgiveness. I am not worthy of receiving forgiveness. I'm not even worthy of being called a son. Treat me like a servant. That's my rightful position. I am so below you. I am so below what I once was and what I should be. He does not even say that he will insist on being restored. He recognizes where he is. And he recognizes he's brought this on himself. But This is not the only character that we meet. Our second character is the prodigal father. Look at verses 20 to 24. Starting in verse 20, and he, the younger son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Some of us may not have uh, relationships with our fathers where it's very emotional or touchy-feely or, you know, where where dad says, I'm proud of you or I love you. Uh, Maybe some of us have had that, and, and, and this sounds exactly like what our dads would do. But when Jesus is using this particular imagery, he's saying something absolutely stunning. Because his mission to rattle the paradigms isn't over. 
what he's saying here would have shocked his listeners because in, in this culture, it was perfectly acceptable for women and young children to run. Totally fine. But the idea of a man pulling up his robes and showing his skinny calves and running down the field, absolutely unthinkable. It would have been embarrassing. It would have been humiliating. This is not what the leader of the patriarchy would do. And yet, that's exactly what this father's done. He sees his wayward son while a long way off. He sees him and he feels compassion. And he takes a great cost to himself to run and embrace him and kiss him. And rather than burning with anger and rage for what he's done with his wealth and what he's done with his reputation and what he's done with his prestige and his status and his name, unwilling to exact justice against this son, he felt compassion. He loved his son. And his son came back. He embraced him. And he kissed him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Friends, this is the happy ending of the story that we want to hear. This young son who was foolish and reckless and immoral and a prodigal recognizes his sin and he comes to the father and he finds restoration. But did you notice here how the father himself is a prodigal? It's not just that the younger son is a prodigal. The father himself is a prodigal in one sense. How? Because he was willing to give lavishly and extravagantly in order to celebrate and welcome his wayward son home. The best robe, the fattened calf, the ring on the hand, the shoes on his feet, the picture of being dressed back to restoration shows not only where the young son would be in the family, but where the young son would be with the father. He would restore him but at a great cost to himself. The father has done an incredible job of acquiescing to the son's demands and submitting to the son's request of, give me my wealth. Here you go. But now, when the young son says, give me the position of a hired hand because I do not belong to, I do not deserve to be in your presence, the father says, no. I will not give you what you insist. I will not give you what you are asking. Friends, this young son was dead. He was as good as dead. He was in a far country. There's no text messaging. There's no way for him to communicate. He was as good as dead. And here he is. He's back. This young son is back. He was dead. And now to the father's delight, he's alive. He was lost. And here he is found. So what greater reason to throw that fattened calf on the grill? What greater reason is there to celebrate? But this isn't the happy ending of the story. Because we have a third character, the prideful brother, uh, verses 25 to 32. Jesus' story goes on. He says, now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
Now, picture this. We don't know how long this younger son's been gone, but younger son is gone, doing his own thing, living recklessly, uh, spending all his stuff on himself. And where do we find the older brother? Well, he's diligently working in the field. He is hard at work. He is honoring his family name. He's doing all the right things. He, he is the one who visually is the one who is respectable, right? So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So here's the news. How should the older brother respond? But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he, the father, said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Friends, do you see the older brother's response? Uh, when he says something, or when, when Jesus uh, tells us he was angry, he refused to go in. The fact that he's in the field honoring his father with his work demonstrates that this was an obedient son. But when he is entreated by his father to come in and eat and drink and be merry and celebrate, he disobeys. He refuses. He was angry. He perceives that a wrong has been done against him, even though it was his father's house that was devoured by prostitutes. A wrong has been done against him. This is unjust. It is an injustice. And this is how the parable ends. There are two questions that I think Jesus is leading us to consider through this parable. Two questions. The first, how can we be lost? And second, how can we be found? How can we be lost and how can we be found? So the first question, how can we be lost? The conclusion is astounding. Did you notice as reading through this parable did you notice who was saved and who remained lost? Jesus was redefining how his listeners understood lostness. And as he did, his listeners, particularly the Pharisees, who probably were still grumbling and their teeth were being ground to a fine dust, they would have been stunned to hear that it was the lover of prostitutes who was saved. And yet the man of morality and uprightness, the diligent, obedient one, was still lost. It's weird. This is not what we should expect. But remember, Jesus is rattling the paradigm of the listeners. We may know that this parable is known as the parable of the prodigal son, but we would be better to understand this as the parable of the lost sons or the parable of the prodigal father. One son was immoral and debaucherous, and the other son was self-righteous and angry. Why doesn't the older brother go in when the father beckons him? And, and, and come and celebrate that his younger brother has been found. Well, friends, Jesus gives you the answer. He gives the reason. The, young, the older brother basically says, I have never disobeyed your command. 
So why does the older brother at the end of this parable remain lost? Because he remains steadfast and staunch in his self-righteousness. When he says, uh, look, these many years, he's not saying, hey, I think we should consider some uh, basic facts here. I have been working for you for seven years under, this, uh, under these working conditions. The terms and, agreement, uh, terms and conditions of our agreement specifically stipulate these things. That's not what he's saying when he says, look. He's saying, look, you, how dare you? The older brother has the audacity and the tenacity to say, how dare you disrespect me? Do you know who I am? We might not get that when we, under, when we just read and he says, look, I have worked in these fields. No, he's saying, you are wrong to treat me this way. How dare you? The younger brother remained self-righteous. He lacked, uh, he was blind to his self-righteousness. He was blind to his pride, his selfishness. You never gave me a fattened calf so I can go enjoy with my friends. Doesn't sound like he wanted his dad part of that party. He was angry. He doesn't even recognize the younger brother to be his own brother. He lacks love. He lacks gentleness. He lacks grace. And as a proud man, he lacks humility. But ultimately, this older brother, he wanted his moral resume to validate and justify himself. Look, I have done all these things and I have never disobeyed your command. My resume would show that I am perfectly qualified for that grill to be fired for me. He responded in anger and rage, and he dishonored his father. Both sons rejected the father in their own way. Both sons wanted their father's gifts and treasures to enjoy for themselves. Neither son wanted the father for the father's sake. And when you read this story, it sure sounds like he was a good dad. And although different in demonstrating their lostness, they are both similarly lost. Both sons were lost, and yet only one was found. So the second question, how then can we be found? Uh, Tim Keller, uh, you've heard me quote him often, and I'm just going to continue to do that this afternoon, or this morning. In his stellar little book, The Prodigal God, uh, the late Tim Keller, he recounts a story once told by the late theologian Edmund Clowney. Uh, if any of you here are fans of expositional preaching, by the way, where we uh, preach through the scriptures and, and we're trying to take the meaning of the text and make that the point of the sermon, um, you have Edmund Clowney to thank for that. Um, he was a Presbyterian theologian from Westminster Theological Seminary, faithful brother, but uh, just a little free history lesson there. Edmund Clowney uh, recounts the true story of a young man who, as a U.S. soldier, was missing in action during the Vietnam War. And when the family could get no word of him through any official channel, the older son flew to Vietnam. And risking his life, he searched the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. And it's said that despite the danger, he was never hurt. Because those on both sides had heard of his dedication and respected his quest. Some of them called him simply the brother. Uh, this is what the elder brother in the parable should have done. This, this, this brother who goes to Vietnam, is what a true elder brother would have done. He would have said, Father, my young brother has been a fool. There's no debate. He's been a fool. And now his life is in ruins. 
but I will go look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. Keller, goes on, or, uh, Keller concludes there, friends, when you consider the story of this uh, unnamed, unknown, uh, older brother who goes to Vietnam, the true elder brother would have said, I'm going to go and to seek to save the lost. Now, we consider a parable like this, and we see, hey, the younger brother's done stuff that people shouldn't be doing, the older brother does stuff that I shouldn't be doing. Uh, what is then the cure for pride? What do we do with pride? How do we just put it away? Because it doesn't seem like it's something that we can just cut out of ourselves and say, yep, going to get rid of this. Don't have to deal with this anymore. Pride is not like a cavity that we just go to the, doctor, uh, the dentist to go get filled. What do we do with this poisonous disease of pride? It is not. The answer is not to simply redouble our efforts to appear more humble. It is not to redouble our efforts to appear more humble. The cure to pride is to look to our true elder brother for rescue. The only way that you and I will recognize our pride is to look to Jesus. And the only way that you and I will be able to appropriately diagnose our pride is to look to Jesus. And the only way that you and I will be saved from our pride is to look to Jesus. And the only way that we will be able to cast our pride aside is to look to Jesus. If you look at Jesus and think, I have got to clean myself up and I have to present myself as presentable before him, you are not coming to Jesus. You are coming to a God of your own imagination. A God that will say to you, you have done enough, you have doubled your efforts, and I am satisfied. And that God will fail you. But if you want to find yourself forgiven and freed from pride, then all you must do is recognize you are diseased. And the only way to be cured is Christ. How? How is Jesus the cure? Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Uh, you, you may be doing a Bible reading plan through this year, and I don't want you to uh, say that I I'm encouraging you to go off track and go do something else. I think Philippians chapter 2 would be a really helpful passage for you to reflect on, not just once this week, but every day this week. Uh, maybe you pause your standard reading plan and you just read this passage and you just pour over what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Uh, maybe you commit this passage to memory. I think you can. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Verse 9, therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, do you see how Jesus is better than the younger son? Having the highest position with the Father, he humbled himself. And yet the younger son humbles himself in a very immoral way, in a way of desperation and humiliation. And do you see how Jesus is better than the older brother? In his high position, Jesus honors the Father. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Keller goes on uh, in that little book, The Prodigal God. If some of you have a commute, this would be a really helpful book for you to read or audiobook. But Keller goes on to say, Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, saw us enslaved by the very things we thought would free us. So he emptied himself of his glory and became a servant. Philippians 2. He laid aside the infinities and immensities of his being, and at the cost of his life, paid the debt for our sins purchasing us the only place our hearts can rest, in his Father's house. Keller goes on, Jesus does not put a true elder brother in the story, one who is willing to pay and, uh, any cost to seek and save that which is lost. It is heartbreaking. The younger son gets a Pharisee for a brother, but we do not. Friends, have you considered that? I'm going to pause on that quote right there. Have you considered what kind of brother you have received even though you were debaucherous and in rebellion against God? You have received a brother who does not look at you with anger and rage and say, you brought this on yourself, you dirty little nasty so-and-so. He looks at you and he says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to rescue you. He says, I am the true elder brother, and I'm going to bring you home. Have you considered what kind of brother we have? Is it awkward or weird for you to think that Jesus is your brother? But friends, in Christ, the beloved, perfect, begotten Son of God, you and I are now children of God. Jesus is our elder brother, and he is not a Pharisee. He is not going to condemn you when his righteousness is what the Father sees. He is not going to just throw you aside and quit his position as an advocate, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, when he sees you wanting to go feed in the uh, nasty pig's feeding trough. He is going to say, no, you are my younger brother, and I'm going to bring you back home. Friends, Keller continues, he says, by putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one, a true one. And we have him. Think of the kind of brother we need. We need one who does not just go to the next country to find us, but who will come all the way from heaven to earth. We need one who is willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but at the infinite cost of his own life to bring us into God's family because our debt is so much greater. 
we are either the elder brothers or the younger brothers, but whichever brother we identify ourselves as, we have rebelled against the true Father. We deserve alienation and isolation and rejection and condemnation and God's wrath and punishment. And yet, the point of this parable is that forgiveness always involves a price. Someone has to pay. There was no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. That's good news. That is the best news you're going to receive this week. Uh, some of you may be up for promotions at work. There is no promotion higher than finding yourself a brother with Christ. I hope you get that promotion. And I hope you recognize that your elder brother has greater riches to share with you. You are a brother with, you have a brother in Christ. Friends, have you considered what your elder brother has done to bring you into the family of God? Keller goes on. There, in, on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked of his robe and dignity so that we could be clothed with dignity and standing we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into God's family freely by grace. There, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. There was no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of our true elder brother. Friends, that is good news. That is good news from a very, very far country. Only when we look to our true elder brother, Jesus, can we find rescue from the poison of our pride. Only when we look to him can we find freedom from being prideful, freedom from being self-absorbed, freedom from centering ourselves as the center not only of the conversations that we have, but the center of the universe in all of our relationships. Only in Christ and by looking to him can we find freedom from constantly obsessing over ourselves, freedom from being obsessed with how others think of us or view us, freedom from the constant competitive comparison where we seek to be seen as greater or more impressive or more intelligent or richer or more put together than another, freedom to, to truly forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Only in Christ do we find freedom to be truly be self-forgetful. Friends, the cure to pride is not some sort of self-flagellation and beating ourselves into submission. The freedom of this idea of self-forgetfulness is not to uh, redouble our efforts, to try a little harder or to do a little bit better. By God's grace, we will grow in humility, but we don't try to just beat ourselves into it. The secret to the freedom of self-forgetfulness is setting our minds and our hearts on what our elder brother has done for undeserving younger and elder brothers like us in the gospel. That's the secret. That's the secret sauce. That's the formula. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus, think on Jesus, meditate on Jesus, reflect on Jesus, talk about Jesus, pray to Jesus, think about Jesus. The most constructive, productive, helpful thing that you might do today, this week, on your commute to work tomorrow, is to think about Jesus. As one pastor famously said, 
Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. It's not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. How do you think of yourself less? By thinking about Jesus more. Think about Christ. Look at what your elder brother has done. Look at what your elder brother is continuing to do. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he is continuing to do something. Look at Jesus. Friends, I've given you three characters from this parable. I've asked you two questions and have hopefully, helpfully answered those two questions. I've got one main idea for you this week. One main idea. And if you haven't figured it out already, I'm, I'm certain you have. But one main idea. Jesus Christ is our true elder brother who humbled himself to save prideful sinners that were lost. And that's me and you. We have an elder brother who has come to rescue us. And he has not come from just a far country. He has come from heaven. And if you remain lost today, you can come to find a home uh, with a father who will welcome you at a great cost to himself. And that cost was borne by Jesus Christ, our true elder brother. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and humbled and we are undeserving to possess and to an, obtain an inheritance in Christ who, as the obedient son, uh, honored you perfectly, obeyed you perfectly, worshipped you perfectly, and loved you perfectly. And yet we have received an inheritance in him and have received a position before you in him. And we have a standing before you all because of him. And so, Lord, we will not boast in our own strength or, or our merits or intellect or capabilities. But, Father, we will boast in your son and give you the honor that you, God, are due. Would you help us to cast aside our pride and help us to look to Jesus and see him, our true elder brother, who came to save us when we were lost in a far country. Lord, we ask all this in our brother's name. Amen.